about the new king. How exciting. We're going to continue on in our sermon series on Amos today. And today's passage is kind of almost like a, a summary of the whole book in some ways. Um, but it does reveal several things about God, as we'll see. So most of you know that I used to run a plumbing business. And while I was doing that, I worked for several landlords. Um, some were big had a and had a couple hundred houses. Others were small and just had a couple. But the one thing they all had in common is they all had horrible eviction stories. And this is not something, like this was the worst part of their job, was evicting someone. Many of these men were Christian landlords, and so it made it even tougher for them. They really struggled with, like, how, how much grace do I show these people? Like, how hard do I try and help them? And many of them went far above and beyond what was required by law. They would allow late payments. They would try and work out, like, a payment plan with people. They would even help them try and come up with a budget. Anything they could do to keep those people in their houses. But sadly, many times, no matter how much they tried, no matter how much grace and mercy they showed, there came a time where the tenant refused to do their part and they had no choice. They had to evict them. Their time had run out. The landlord's mercy had run out. Our scripture passage today parallels these stories by revealing that God is merciful, but he is also just. And so there comes a time when he must set aside his mercy to bring about his wrath. In case you haven't been following along with us in this sermon series, we've been working through the book of Amos. Short little prophetic book, but one of the first prophets to speak to Israel. And throughout it, we see Amos calling out the surrounding nations and then Israel itself for all their sin. And he's giving them warnings, saying, stop this nonsense. Stop your horrible, fake worship. Stop trampling the poor and taking advantage of them. And he's giving them warnings. He's saying, stop this, or all this bad stuff is coming. And as Brandon preached on last week, the time to repent was then, to let mercy roll like a river. But unfortunately, they refused to do it. And like the wayward tenant in our story, their time is up. So turn with me to Amos chapter 7, and we'll read the text. We'll read to uh, chapter 8, verse 3 custom at the bridge to stand just out of respect for God and his word. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth. After the king's mowing, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive how can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord showed me. 
Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuary of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from the land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away from the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the words of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel will surely go into exile away from its land. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never, pass, pass, I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. This is the word of the Lord. If you notice in our text today, there's a big dramatic change that takes place in how God is revealing his message. Amos is no longer hearing God's instructions as he did in the first six chapters, but now he is seeing them through visions. In one sense, God is turning up the intensity on his message. The coming doom is now palatable. It's more real to Amos. I imagine Amos had the same feeling as people had when TV first came out. People were used to hearing the stories of Little Orphan Annie and the Lone Ranger. But when television came out, they could see it. They were no longer just visualizing it in their head. They could see it with their eyes. They could hear it. 
the message was uh, working with more of the senses of the body. It's becoming clearer, more real, more tangible. And the message changes slightly, and it's no longer just bad things are going to happen to you, but God is showing the practical ways in which he is going to administer his justice. So to understand what's going on here, we're going to break this passage of four visions into two different groups. The first two visions and the second two visions. Our first group shows us the reality of sinners in the hands of a merciful God. And our last two show us sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now both of these groupings are subdivided then into three movements where we have God revealing something, man responding to him. God's revelation, and then God responding to man's response. Our first vision, um, found right at the beginning of chapter 7, where God reveals what he's going to do. So we have this horrifying vision of certain destruction for everybody in the land. Talks about the swarm of locusts devouring the spring crop just after the king's mowing. Now, swarms of locusts was nothing new to the nation of Israel. They had seen God use this exact judgment on Egypt when they were delivered out. And they had struggled from time to time with this swarm of locusts, and, and these locusts are still a problem in the Middle East today. They're these grasshopper bugs with a ravenous appetite. And it's said that when they show up, it darkens the sky like rain clouds. Like, that's how many there are. And when they descend on a field, they just devour it. And as soon as it's gone, they're up and they're on to the next one. This is kind of like Christmas or Thanksgiving where your Uncle Jim shows up, right? And you know if he gets to the food line before you, there ain't gonna be nothing left, right? Maybe a couple crumbs. That's the same idea that's behind the swarm of locusts. Now, scholars aren't sure 100% what the king's mowing is. They think it may have been uh, an offering to the king or could have been taxes that they paid to the king. But the idea is that the first crops that came up, they want, were already spoken for, they were already taken from the people. And so just as the other ones are starting to sprout up, locusts are coming and eating it. This, this was their cash crop as well as their food and for their animals and for them. So we can see, even though we don't understand what the king's uh, mowing is, we can see, though, that certain destruction is coming to these people. That there's no way to escape, that surely everyone would die. Our second Vision is revealing exactly the same point, just with a different method. Our second vision talks about a fire that devours the deep and eats the land, in verse 4. Now, most scholars agree that this is not a literal fire coming down from heaven like Sodom and Gomorrah, but rather this is a severe drought that dries up all the creeks and the ponds and even the water underneath, like the aquifers we have here and we depend on in Kansas. But the result would have been the same. The crops would not grow, and people 
would be left to die. So God reveals this doom, and then Amos responds to him in a proper manner. Because when God reveals stuff to us, man's response should always be one of worship. So maybe worship through praise, worship through obedience, worship through repentance. For Amos, it's worship through prayer. But not just any kind of prayer, intercessory prayer. Amos is standing in the gap for Israel in the same way that Moses stood in the gap for Israel when they were in the wilderness. Just as God was ready to destroy Israel back then for their false worship and their golden calf, God is doing the same thing. And so Amos steps up in the line of a true prophet as Moses was, and he pleads to God. And he appeals to God's character the same way that Moses did. He appeals to God's mercy. He calls the nation of Israel Jacob in these passages, which is not a common name for Israel. And what he's drawing on here is the analogy that Israel is small and weak, the same way that Jacob was small and weak compared to his brother Esau. But yet God had mercy on him because of that. Well, our response to God today should be the same as Amos's. We should worship God today by standing in the gap for the weak and the helpless sinners who are under God's wrath. We should be on our knees every day confessing our own sins but then asking God to give the gift of mercy and grace and faith to those who do not know Christ so that Christ's death can satisfy God's wrath the same way it satisfied our wrath. See, reading stories like this and, and a growing of my theology has changed the way that I pray for unbelievers. I used to pray for the sinner and the sinner's action. God changed the sinner's heart so that he may accept you. But see, a couple of years ago I realized this, that I needed to start praying to God. Not, not praying for the person, but praying that God would have mercy on the sinner. That God would extend the gift of faith to the unbeliever. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so if it's the gift from God, we need to ask God to be merciful, to appeal to his character, to extend that grace, that mercy, onto our unbelieving friends, and to give them the gift of salvation. fully devoted followers of Christ, our hearts should be moved for the lost. Our hearts should be moved for those who are facing God's judgment. So therefore, we need to stand in the gap for them to pray for their deliverance from God's wrath. Now, this doesn't mean that we overlook their sins 
or that we don't speak up about their sins, but that we pray for their salvation, for God's mercy, while we are confronting their sins. I mean, read the whole book of Amos, and you'll see that Amos did just that. He was calling out Israel's sin very clearly and blatantly. I mean, it got him exiled from the country. But in this passage here today, we see the other side. That though Amos was calling out their sins, he was also pleading for God's mercy. Now the church in the past did a really good job of calling out people's sins without the love and without the mercy. And today we've kind of swung all the way over to the other side where we don't want to call out people's sin anymore in the name of love. But is it really loving someone if we don't tell them to watch out? To tell them like, hey, that is an unwise choice. And here's the consequences of that choice. But both here in this world, but also eternally, and that it separates us from God and it puts us under God's discipline. So church, we need to swing back to the middle where we are preaching both, this is a sin, but I love you and I'm praying that God will have mercy upon your sin. And then this is not something that is reserved only for non-believers. This is something that we should also do among believers. This is one of the reasons that we have bridge groups in this church. One, so that when we are struggling with sin, we can go to our group and we can confess our sins to them so that they can come alongside us and build us up and encourage us. But also, if we notice sin in someone's life, in a very loving and kind manner, we should go to them and point out that sin. Because chances are they don't see it. Sin has this really nasty way of just creeping in, changing our thoughts, so that we don't necessarily see it as sin. And so as brothers and sisters who love one another, being full of mercy, coming at this from a heart of love for our brothers, not self-righteousness, not condemnation, we should point out our sins to our brother and pray with them and for them to be restored to God. Now the third movement in this vision is God's response to Amos' pleading. Verses 3 and 6. God responds to Amos by relenting, showing that he is patient and merciful. God is demonstrating here what is spoken out or spoken of him throughout the scriptures. This phrase, God is slow to anger and abounding in love, is found all throughout the Old Testament. Way back in Exodus we hear it, and then in several of the Psalms and the prophets. And then in the New Testament and the Old Testament, we also have this idea that God takes no joy in punishing sinners. Ezekiel 18.32 and 2 Peter 3.9 both show this, that because of God's mercy and compassion, 
He desires that people would repent and that he would not have to pour out his wrath because his wrath has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. We worship a God that does not send lightning bolts every time that we sin. Huh? Isn't that awesome? It's not every time we screw up, God destroys our lives. Because of it. And because of this, we should not be scared to then repent of our sin and draw nearer to God. Because he is full of grace and mercy. He does not bring discipline and judgment unless it's absolutely necessary to save us. Now, hear me. I'm not preaching a message of cheap grace or saying that God doesn't hate sin, because he does. That's clear throughout all the Bible. I mean, just look at the book we're preaching through right now, right? You cannot read this book and not see that God absolutely hates sin. But he is very slow to pour out his wrath on that sin, because he wishes that all people through grace would come to repentance and salvation. But as we see in our next set of visions here, God's mercy does have an end. Because there is times when God must set his mercy aside to bring about his discipline for the purpose of salvation. And so in verses 7, we, we switch from sinners in the hands of a merciful God to sinners in the hands of an angry God. And once again, we have the three-part structure where God reveals. In, these, in this third vision, God shows Amos a wall and a plumb line. For those of you who don't know what a plumb line is, I brought one for you today. This is a really cool, really precise, yet really simple tool. And it's used for building. It's using for testing the straightness of something vertically because when I swing this around or whatever, notice how it stops very quickly and accurately. And this is perfectly straight. And so I can set it up on items, right? And you can see right here that this is, this is straight. But yet if I come to something that's not straight... You can see, you might not have been able to see this with the naked eye, that this is an, there's an angle on this. But yet when we hang the plumb blob, indeed we see just that. So this is what God has shown Amos. So when walls were built in that day, this is the tool that they use to check, to see. And when it was hanging there, they could either eyeball it if their eyes were really good, or they could take and they could measure off the top and different places in the string and make sure that the wall was perfectly straight. Because if the wall wasn't perfectly straight, then the wall was no good. It was unsafe, and ultimately, it would fail. And so Amos saw this plumb line up against the wall, and he could see just how crooked how wobbly, how 
out of straight this wall was. You see, the wall in this vision is the nation of Israel. And the plumb line is God's perfect law. So upon Amos seeing this, he could see just how out of sync the nation of Israel was with God's law. In the second part of this, of verse 8, we find this phrase, I will never again pass by them. And God is showing here that they are so crooked, that they are so depraved, that he can no longer extend his grace and mercy to them. But the time for destruction is upon them. And I think some of this Passover language is similar to the Passover in Exodus, where God passed over their sins, right? And so this would have been very real to the Israelites because God's saying, I can't do that no more. I'm sorry. I've tried, I've tried, and I've tried. I've given grace, I've given mercy, I've sent people to warn you, but you wouldn't listen. So now is the time. And in verse 9, God talks a little bit more about this destruction, how he's going to remove all the places of false worship that have been set up in the country to purify that, to help to make the wall straight again. But unlike humans, who usually function out of spite or retaliation, God is functioning out of love here. See, God loves his creation so much that he can't let it be ruined by sin. And he wants the world to see the consequences of sin. His hate, his just distaste and disgust with sin. So that they will not make the same mistake as Israel did. They will not pollute their worship. They will not trample upon the poor. Because God's not only revealing his hate for sin, but showing Amos the world that he is justified in punishing the nations for their sin. And God is justified because he is holy, and he's the one that made the rules when he created all of creation back in Genesis 1. He reveals just how crooked, how far off everyone has gotten to that perfect law. Now the fact still remains, God would be justified in punishing the world for just one sin. But as we spent a lot of time talking about, he's also the God of mercy and love. So now we get to man's response. And in this section, we have two people responding to God's revelation of destruction. One good, one bad. Amaziah responds to God, first off, by rejecting his message and his messenger. Instead of listening to God's word and repenting of the sins and of the nation's sins that they were guilty of, he twists the message of God and he sends a false report to the king saying, there's a conspiracy going on. Amos is against the country. He's trying to destroy the country. He's got this plot to kill you, Jeroboam. And this is why he insults Amos 
and tells him to flee in verse 12. Because of, he feels he's justified. He thinks that he is hearing correctly from God and ultimately just rejecting God's message. See, his mind has been so clouded by all the sins that he can't hear God clearly. Now, Amaziah was the chief priest of the day, meaning he is in charge of the whole nation. So when he speaks, he's speaking on behalf of the nation. Kind of like our ambassadors or our secretary of state function today. When they go to another country and they say something, the whole world sees them as speaking for everybody in the United States and not just themselves. And in fact, if God would have delivered this message to each individual person in Israel, their response would have been that of Amaziah's, one of rejection. It's also interesting to note that Amaziah was a false priest set up back at Jeroboam I. And so God is really bringing a total cleansing on the nation here. See, he's kind of been lured into this false assumption that they're all right with God because of all the financial prosperity they've had. And there's all kinds of worship going on here as we've been talking about before. The problem is, it's false worship. It's also interesting that really what Amaziah is saying is, we don't want to hear from God anymore. And in fact, that's what happens here. Because just in a short while, God will be, remain silent while the nation of Israel is in exile. What a scary place it can be sometimes when God gives us what we want. And so seeing their rejection of God's word should really act as a sober reminder to us to listen when someone comes to us pointing out sin either in our lives or in our culture. See, we have to be humble. We can't be arrogant like Amaziah and just quickly dismiss the charges as false. Rather, we should take what is said. We should consider it. We should hold it up to Scripture and see if the accusations they're bringing is biblically based. We should seek God and ask God to reveal some sin in our lives that perhaps we're not aware of. Because like I said before, our mind can get so clouded that we don't see the sin in our lives. So if someone in your bridge group or someone in this church comes to you in a loving manner, says, hey man, I kind of noticed this about you. Or if they're speaking up against some of the injustices in culture, perhaps you should listen to that. Perhaps you shouldn't just write them off as a liberal or a Republican. But maybe they have some different facts, some different experiences in their lives. Perhaps they have a clearer understanding of different parts of Scripture because of that. A wise man once told me that in your in the process of discipleship, you should seek out people of all colors because your theology cannot be fully formed until you've sat under the tutelage of people that are different than you. 
I don't want you to hear me as let's open it up. Like, yes, take it to Scripture. Study Scripture. Allow them to explain Scripture to you. Because if a Jehovah Witness comes to you, like, no, I'm saying don't listen to him because they're not a Christian. But there are times in our lives we don't notice things. Some glaring examples in our country is slavery, segregation, racism. Those things just crept their way in it. And people who honestly loved God justified them by Scripture through a wrong reading of Scripture. And unfortunately, we stand as a nation here today still not wanting to listen to those people and understand that, yeah, they are talking about gospel issues. As Brandon mentioned last week, it's not social justice, it's gospel justice. So may we not respond like Amaziah, but may we respond like Amos. Because he, re- he responds to God in a completely different way. He responds with obedience. This, the, this section, verses 10 through 17, is the only narrative we have in this book of prophecy. We don't have a bunch of details concerning the, the bigger story around Amos's ministry. There's some in Kings, but not a lot of details. But in this story, in Amos's defense, we see that he is completely obedient to God. He surrenders everything to follow God. Leaves his home, leaves his crops, leaves his cows and sheep to go and be faithful to the message God has given him. And Amaziah didn't see this. Amaziah was accusing him of just being a prophet for profit. Because in those days it was very common. People liked the clout. They liked the... the um, being famous for being a prophet. And there were these like guilds or sects of prophets, you know, that people, it was kind of like the union back then, right? They belonged to the union of prophets. And their motivation was nothing but just fame and money. And this is why Amaziah tells him, go eat your bread in Judah. To which Amos responds, listen man, I already got a job. I didn't just be like, wake up one day and go, yeah, I'm going to be a prophet. Nor did I come from a long line of prophets or been a prophet before I came to speak this message. Nor do I belong to the union of prophets. No, I'm just a simple farmer, a poor farmer. Because sycamore figs was the crop of the poor in that day. And so Amos is not motivated here out of self value or, or providing herself. No, he is motivated out of a heart of obedience to God. So he's willing to give up everything. And this radical obedience is what we sign up for when we put our faith in Christ. Because if we are claiming that we are a Christian, then we are saying that we are all in with him and therefore willing to surrender all of our time talents, and treasure to the obedience of Christ. This is what Jesus was speaking about 
when he said, consider the cost of discipleship, to take up your cross daily, to leave your mother and your father behind, to love them less than you love Christ. And there are certain things that we're all called to obedience. Worshiping, loving God, loving our neighbor, telling the truth, right? God's moral standards are something that we should all be obedient to in the same regard. But there's other things that are specific to you or specific to me. Because God calls some people to be pastors. God calls some people to be missionaries, to leave their home and go to Africa and faithfully preach the gospel. But God also calls some people to go down to Spate and to have lunch with some kids, to help them with their math and reading, to show them the love of God, to show them that there is a God in heaven who created them and loves them very much. Other of you are called to be businessmen, to be bankers, to make lots of money so that you can go and support the people who are called to go and preach the gospel or to hire people who are unhirable because they're an ex-con, to work with them in justice and help them to show the same mercy that God showed and teach them how to be responsible adults. So how about you? Are you willing to leave everything to follow Christ? Are you willing to leave your home and walk across the street and tell your neighbor the gospel? If you're struggling to be obedient in these areas, it's all right. I struggle too. We all struggle. But guess what? We have this wonderful thing called the church where our brothers and sisters can come alongside us, they can link arms, they can pick us up when we're weak, they can encourage us and motivate us to be obedient. As I said before, this is one of the beautiful things of bridge groups, that we can hold each other accountable, we can encourage each other, and help each other to grow in our obedience to Christ. Second thing that Amos shows us is that remaining obedient to God may come at the cost of being unpopular. From Amaziah's response to Amos, we see that no one wants to hear the message of God. Yet, Amos had a choice. He could have stopped preaching this message. He could have never started preaching this message because he knew it would have been unpopular. Yet he chose to live out his obedience and to suffer the scrutiny and the mocking of the people. He chose to go to the people who hated him because at this time, it was a divided kingdom. And Amos came from Judah, which did not get along with Israel. So how about us, church? Are we willing to be unpopular? Are we willing to be mocked? Are we willing to be looked down upon? because we are willing to go share the gospel with people in a loving manner? Are we willing to tell people the consequences for their sins and how they can avoid them? Doing this, obviously, with humility and love. 
Or the church will remain quiet. Try and look cool. Try and save face. My prayer and desire is that we as a church would be known for reaching the lost. That we would be known for rescuing lives from destruction, from their sins. Why we still have time. Because that's the point that God is making in the last vision. Time's up. So God responds to this vision. Or God responds through another vision to Amaziah and Amos' response. And I want to close on this vision. In his last vision, God shows the prophet that God has reached the point where he is setting aside his mercy and bringing his just punishment on them. God shows Amos a basket of summer fruit. And there's a word play going on here in the Hebrew because the word for summer fruit and end sound the same, though they are spelled different, kind of like prophet and prophet, or my Aunt Sally, or my pet Aunt Sally. And the wordplay really helps to emphasize the symbolism of this fruit. Because we all know that summer fruit, right, it's ripe. And if it's not picked at ripeness, what happens? It spoils. And so the symbolism, the emphasis that God is putting here, the time for reaping is now. Just as the fruit is ready for harvest, so Israel is ready for punishment. But you know what, church? Today we find ourselves in a very similar space, place. If you read through the New Testament, if you read about the end times, which we're living in today, the signs are everywhere. Wickedness is growing. Preachers are preaching things that people want to hear instead of preaching hard books like Amos, where we're confronted with our sin. They become mere ear ticklers. The Bible also says that we are closer now to the one we first believed. And I tell you this not to scare you, but to challenge you, to show you that the time to be obedient to the Great Commission now. The time to be sober-minded, the time to be faithful, is now, church. Are we making disciples of all nations? Are we surrendering our comforts and normalcy of life to proclaim a message that this world so desperately needs? Or are we just remaining silent, waiting for God to bring his judgment upon those we don't like. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, this whole book has been a hard word for us as we just see the consequences of sin. As we see the destruction that sin brings about, Lord. Father, may your spirit just move us inside to be like Amos, to be obedient to you, Lord, to repent of any sin that we have in our lives, but then to go and tell the nations, Lord, that there is death 
that there is destruction coming because God is a just God. And he can only set he can only put forth his grace and his mercy for so long. Father, may you put a burning desire in our hearts to reach the lost. Father, may we not be able to sleep at night till we are totally consumed with your gospel and sharing that good news, sharing the way to Christ in love and humility. Father, we do just pray for your mercy to be poured out upon this neighborhood. Father, we pray for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for our family. Father, in your mercy, would you give them the gift of faith? And in your mercy, Father, would you forgive us of remaining silent? Would you spur us on, Lord, to hold one another accountable? preach this message to a dying world that so needs it. It's in your powerful and amazing and gracious name we pray all these things.